Welcome to the Cruciform Life Church podcast, featuring the weekly sermons from our Sunday gathering. Please visit us online at www.cruciformlifechurch.org for more information. Reading from God's Word, Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. This would just be our text that we could put our finger, but we would not stay there all the sermon. It reads, Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we humbly ask that as your word is preached today, may the power of your Holy Spirit work in the hearts and in the minds of your people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let me take your seats. We are now on our series on God-centered theology, and really it's Reformed theology, on this very important uh, reformational doctrine on Christ alone. I think very, very important. Now, it's also important that we get to be reminded of this very important teaching in Scripture because we have this tendency to be jaded with something uh, that we are so familiar with, isn't it? Uh, we get to be jaded. In other words, uh, first time we experience a thing, we are amazed, we are even awed. But the more we are exposed to that thing, those things would lose its brilliance. It happened so many times in so many ways. Now, while... It is okay. I think it is okay because it is a testimony that things of this world is not sufficient. They are not inexhaustible. And so however good a place is, uh, if you go back there thrice and even six times and seven times, it is normal that it is not as pleasant as it used to be for us. Right? But when it comes to 
scripture, when it comes to the teaching, especially on Christ alone, we cannot afford to feel like this is jaded. This is familiar. This is, you know, si pastor parang lakang basag na paulit-ulit every Sunday. The gospel, the gospel, Christ alone. We cannot afford to lose the wonder, the wonder of His grace, the wonder of His mercy. We cannot afford to do that. Now, especially that the, the church in history has proven to be uh, easily veering away. And the Lipunam church must sway to other things instead of being faithful to uh, the right teaching. Imagine if you were taken to a lifeboat in the middle of a stormy sea. So there was a lifeboat who saved you, but then the boat also capsized. Or, or nabaliktad din po yung boat. And then you grab a plank of the boat. The second plank where you can still be saved. Now, the problem during the Reformation is that the Roman Catholic teaches that there is a second plunk. And their belief is that when a child is baptized, he is introduced to grace. He is introduced to grace and he is, quote-unquote, justified. But then as that person grows, grows and he would sin, what they call as mortal sin, they call it mortal sin, you will lose that justification. But don't you worry because there is a second plank of justification. Uh, the, the argument really revolves around the second plank of justification. And the second plank of justification, uh, second plank of justification refers to the, the, the sacrament of penance. Where you know, you pay for your sins, whatever that might be, and then you will be, you will have the justification again. So the reformers, especially Luther, thought of it later on and thought, is this right? Is this right? Is this teaching right? That there is a second plank of justification, namely the sacrament of penance. Even more, even more, the church grew worse to the point that Christ is no longer enough for as a mediator. There is another mediator towards Christ, and that is Mary. And if you die not unsure of your justification, don't you worry, because you will go to a place of cleansing, which is called purgatory, where your loved ones who are still alive and will exercise or will enjoy, the, pay for the indulgences, like pay for a mass, pay for all of these things, then you can be cleansed in that cleansing place and one day you'll be justified, cleansed, be made righteous, and you'll be with God forever. That is where the controversy revolved around during that time. The, the reformers feared that instead of finding Christ, ang, pin, ang kinatatakutan po ng mga reformers at that time is instead na makita si Kristo as sufficient 
as sufficient and you would continue in Him, the church has the penchant or ang church po ay meron po silang parang ano ba? Ha? Tendency. Naghanap ng words of penchant. They have the tendency um, to run after the new teaching. And that has always been the problem with the church. Listen to Martin Luther. He said, For we always must have something new. Christ's death and resurrection, faith in love, are old and just ordinary things. That is, that is why they must count for nothing. And so we must have new whittlers or one that would stir up our hearts. In, so to speak. And this, this whittler, serves us right since our ears itch so much for something new that we can no longer endure the old and genuine thing. That we weigh ourselves down with big piles of new teachings. This is just what has happened. And look at how prophetic uh, Luther was and will continue to happen. Calvin looked at it and Calvin said that this is the way Satan will lure us away from Christ and obscure or magiging blurred yung paningin natin sa sufficiency ni Christ. Very quickly, let me just read Calvin this time. He said, For how comes it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines? But because the excellence of, excellence of Christ is not perceived by us. For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence, there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mist with a view of obscuring Christ because he knows that by these means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine to place Christ before the view such as he is with all his blessings that his excellence be truly perceived. What he's saying is that there's nothing we can do but to always put Christ because once we remove Christ at the center, everything are wrong. Everything are wrong. That's how important it is. Even among us today, the church continues to cry for reformation because even up until today, many of the people even in the church think that we need to go to Sunday to attend service so I will be saved. And especially today in a time of um, relativist, relativistic philosophy where people now begin to admit that there is no one way to go to God. And it's not just through Jesus Christ, but there are a lot of ways to go to God. So we need our own reformation today. The church will continue to cry out for reformation. That is how important it is today. To be honest, it is impossible for us in this short time that we are 
together. I only have around 40 to 45 minutes from here. Um, I cannot touch everything. I cannot touch everything. So here's my plan. I'm not going to present exhaustive nor comprehensive presentation of the reformational doctrine of Christ alone. I would just seek to provide us or to persuade us rather that salvation is in Christ alone. That's all that I want to do today. Salvation is in Christ alone. Nothing more, nothing less. I will be guided by this simple question. Why is salvation in Christ alone? Why is salvation in Christ alone? Now, I will not go to the reformers. I think the scripture still holds the authority when it comes to the teaching of scripture. In fact, Pama Schreiner puts it beautifully when he said, our focus is not the reformers themselves. It is to grasp that their teaching on Christ alone is worth recovering because it encapsulates the teaching of scripture. Ultimately, we want to follow the reformers to proclaim who Christ is and what he has done. And look at that. According to what scripture says about him. So we'll be spending our time looking at scripture. Why salvation is in Christ alone. I'll be circling around this message today. If you missed out a lot of the things that I will be saying, don't miss this one out. And I want to ask you for those of us who are note takers. Um, I, I heard uh, a teaching by Tim Keller. And he said, preaching on Sunday is a very unique part in the life of the church where God does his transformation, where God illumines hearts. And if God was speaking and you were writing, Lord, we might miss what God wants to do. Now, I want to, uh, in, in our doctrinal class, write down as much as you can. But in our preaching time, if you want to write down, write down. I'm not, I'm not keeping you to do that. Make sure that your eyes, rather are, your ears and your heart are, are listening to God while you do that. But if not, just listen. And if you want to take down notes, you can always review our sermon so you can, you can take down uh, notes. So here's our message today. Here's our central message. Salvation is in Christ alone because the Trinitarian plan of redemption is centered on Christ whose person and work alone made redemption possible. Uh, it's, it's a claim. It's another way of claiming that salvation is in Christ alone. And whatever angle that you would look at it, you would look at it in the Trinitarian plan, or you would look at it in the person and work of Christ, which, which is, by the way, the main focus of the Reformers, to prove that salvation is in Christ alone. So we will have two main points. First, Christ is at the center of the eternal and trinitarian plan of redemption. And the second is Christ alone is the God-appointed mediator between God and man. So let's go with the first one. Christ is at the center of the eternal and trinitarian plan of God. So for, for our knowledge, the trinitarian plan of God speaks of the covenant of redemption. So if you're asking, if you're new, what is covenant of redemption? You should attend our, our, our doctrinal class. 
covenant of redemption, it's, it is an agreement, but you and I were not there. This is an eternal agreement between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they will have a people for themselves. God will have a people for himself. That is the covenant of redemption. It is just between the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know that it is scriptural because if you look at Ephesians 1, verse 4, uh, for example, if you look at that one, we understand that our election, God shows us not when we were born, not when he started created, not when Adam and Eve fell into sin. And God suddenly have a plan B and said, now that they lost um, their purity, they fell into sin, let me start choosing some people. That No, that's not the story of Scripture. You go back to before the foundation of the world, God already chose people for himself. Plainly saying, this is God's eternal purpose. Scripture calls it eternal purpose. One of the prophets called it eternal plan. And Paul said this one in Ephesians 3 verse 8 to 11. And I like to read it here because the context of Philippians chapter 3, Paul was talking about how God brought Gentiles and Jew together, which we call church today. So let me start reading verse 8. For to me, though I am very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So that's his privilege to preach the gospel. Verse 9, And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. Now in the book of Ephesians, the, the mystery is the plan of God the Jews and Gentiles will be, born, will be one through Jesus Christ. In other words, the church, the, the, the mystery in the book of Ephesians is the church, which is now being revealed. Verse 10, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, to their amazement. They did not know that until they saw Gentiles and Jews together becoming one through Jesus Christ, and the rest of heaven worshipped God for that wisdom. Verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will look at the centrality of Jesus in that eternal purpose of God. Paul also said in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, he described God in this way, who saved us, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose, look at that, and grace, which he gave us, that purpose and grace he gave us in Christ Jesus, when? Before the ages begun. It's really bringing us back when there was nothing there but God. They already have a covenant of redemption. They already have an agreement, if you may, within the Trinity that they will have a people for himself. For themselves. Notice, 
that in this eternal purpose of God, we are told by Paul, again, that God will realize this in Christ Jesus. Jesus being the center of this Trinitarian plan of God. Now, I can dump us with a lot of, of passages, but our church was not, we are not trained to do that, right? Malu would always tell me if I'm not doing exposition of a specific text, I'm using a lot of text. And when we go home, he would say, it's so hard to catch up that. So hard. We're not, we're not used to that. And so, um, by way of understanding us, I, w- I will use Colossians as, as our springboard, where we can always put our finger on it and see how Paul developed this thought. So we can always go back to Colossians and see this plan of God. Colossians 1, 12 to 13, it reads, let me start with 12 to 13. And this is part of Paul's prayer for the Colossians, uh, that they may continue to bear fruit. And then he also said, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So this is the work of the Father qualifying us who are darkness qualified us into the light. Verse 13, it says, He has delivered us from the rule of darkness, from the domain of darkness, from being under the rule of Satan, this world, and transferred us, transported us, bringing us out of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. The kingdom of His beloved Son is the kingdom of the light in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So look at that. Right from the beginning, we know that it was God who promised salvation. It was not even Adam's idea. When he sinned against God, God did not... Adam did not appeal to God and say, Lord, can you please save us? Probably Adam did not have any idea or hint at all about salvation. When God cursed them in in Genesis chapter 3, it was God who brought the idea of redemption when he said in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's why it's crazy when when people think they can save themselves. In fact, verse 9 of the first chapter of 2 Timothy, if we go back there, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 again. Paul again described the Father who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of His own purpose, His own Purpose, even the famous John 3.16, which we love, I think one of our favorite verses in the scripture says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. When we look at the redemptive work of the scripture, the father is presented as the one who planned 
as the one who planned and made it possible. It is all of the Father. Of course, he did it through Jesus. But like an engineer, if you are an engineer and you constructed a building, you did it through the carpenters, isn't it? But at the end of the day, we can rightly say that the engineer built it. Now, uh, a pale comparison, because you cannot separate the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're one. But just as we can say that Jesus did it, we can also say the Father did it. Although he did it through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.14 then, look at, yes, the Father did it, but take note that the Father did not have any other plan, but everything about redemption is centered on his son, Jesus Christ. So Colossians 1.14 after he said he transferred you in the kingdom of his beloved son, he then gave us a description of the son, saying, in whom we have redemption for the forgiveness of sin. That's right, because redemption focused not on poverty. Redemption does not focus on our health, per se. Redemption focuses on the root of poverty. Redemption focuses on the root of sickness, if you may. Because if sin did not enter the world, there will be no poverty. If sin did not enter the world, there will be no sickness. So it is right to say that all problems here on earth is because of Adam. And because redemption focuses on that, redemption focuses on forgiveness of sin, which God would accomplish through His Son. So God is the one who planned and accomplished salvation, but He did it through Jesus Christ. So if this is the Trinitarian plan of redemption, Trinitarian plan of redemption, God planned it and did it through Jesus Christ, applied it through the Holy Spirit, then a faithful Christian cannot have another way of salvation. We cannot have other way of salvation. If for no other reason, it is Christ alone. If hindi pa natin naintindihan or kung hindi pa natin pinag-usapan yung work and person of Jesus Christ, if for no other reason but that we understand from Scripture that the God who created the world and the God who planned redemption is a God who centers all that plan in Jesus Christ. That's why the reformers said um, that Christ alone is the linchpin. Everything is connected to it. So if you think of a um, a wheel, sa bicicleta, Christ alone is that small round thing in the middle where all spokes are connected. That's how important it is. Paul said to Timothy that every sound doctrine should be tested in accordance to the gospel. Chapter 1 of First Timothy and verse 11. So everything is centered. Now for this reason, we explicitly read in the scripture. So let me connect. Let me not just 
jump away, right away to any application yet. We're not yet done building our message. Um, scripture presented Jesus as the only mediator. Only mediator in all of Scripture. This leads us to our second point. Christ alone is the God-appointed mediator between God and man. He alone. We understand that the writer of the book of Hebrews says, no priest will just present himself or appoint himself that I want to be a priest. All priests are God-appointed. And then he said in Hebrews chapter 5, and so thus Jesus was appointed by the Father. Look at, listen to these verses of Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. For there is one God. So if you are referring to that one God, if you're worshiping that God of the Scripture, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, and he did it by giving himself as a ransom for all. Of course, Acts 4.12 could not be more exclusive. When it comes to salvation, the scripture is exclusive. It says, and there is no salvation in no one else. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name but the name of Jesus. And Jesus himself explicitly came I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It is not through the church. It is not through our works. It is not through other means. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So let's unpack this one and see why Jesus alone can mediate between a holy God and a sinful human being. That's what I wanted to do for the rest of our time as we study Scripture. Now, there are two things to see, the person and work of Christ. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. Both, both of these will tell us that Jesus alone can save and no one else. Look at the person of Christ. Now, Church history tells us that the person of Christ is hard to understand. Right? If we study church history, it is not easy to balance. It is beyond comprehension. And that's why many would fall on this one side or the other side. It's so hard to balance the person of Christ. And let me just give you a little um, church history. By circling around the word homoousios and homoousios, in around third century, uh, because Sabellius said, uh, a heretic by the name of Sabellius said that God or Jesus is the same substance as God, but lower than God. Are you like me? This is lower than God. And so the church took the stand of homoousios. It's just, just one iota there, just one. They took the stand of homoousios just to say, we're not with Sabellius. 
But later on, on the 4th century, a heretic came by the name of Arius. And Arius said, Jesus is just like God, not the same substance with God. The church swings to homotious, which we now accept. No iota or letter I on our time today. It's just homoousius because now the church is saying, we don't want to be with Arius. Jesus is the same substance as the Father and the Holy Spirit. There's no difference between the three because they cannot be one if there is a slight difference among the three of them. They have to be exactly alike in everything because they are one. Are you following? But the church is clear during that time that we say homoousius, but we are not like Sabellius who said that Jesus is the same substance as the Father, but lower than the Father. What the church at that time is saying is exactly the same substance with the Father and the Spirit, and He is not lower. He is equal with the Father and of the Son. Later on, no? Later on, in the in in Chalcedon, uh, around fifth century, the problem there is the on the incarnation. How would you put it in mind that you are claiming that Jesus is God and fully human? How does it exactly work? They saying you unite it, but when you're uniting it, you lose the human the full humanity, and you also lose the deity, you have a totally different substance. Another would also say that Jesus is fully God, fully man, but they are totally separated. Or the other people would say they are bound together, but they lose their natures. And the church in, in, the, in that time saying, no, the fully human, fully divine, Distinct, and yet one. Now, don't let me explain that. It is distinct. It is one person, but the nature is not like confused. When Jesus acted, it was not like, am I human? Is this my human? No, no, that's fully one, and yet it's not mixed. It's fully God and fully man. That's why if you look at, if you look at our creeds, you would ask, ano ba talagang pinaniniwalaan natin, Pastor? Apostles' Creed? Nicene Creed? Athanasian Creed? Chalcedonian Creed? Let me say this, all of those creeds. Because every time there is a new heresy, the church will add something to make clear their understanding of Scripture. I want to use Colossians 1, 15-20, just very quickly on this. <clears throat> Colossians 1, 15-20, it reads, He is the image of the invisible God. That's Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the prototype. It's not, just that, it's not saying that He was the first created. No, everything proceeds out of Him. That's why verse 16 says, the firstborn here is used as source. Jesus is the source of all creation. And we know that because in verse 16, Paul explained, For by Him, all things were created, all things were created in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That is Paul's way of saying that, yes, I told you he is the image of God, but he is God himself. Because when we talk about the creator of all things, we are indirectly saying that that person is God. Verse 17, it reads, and he is, and he continues, he is before all things. That's God. And not only that, in him, all things hold together. And you remember the Trinitarian redemption, the covenant of redemption where God will have a people for himself. In verse 18, he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That the Trinitarian plan of redemption is saying that he created, uh, the church was created through Jesus Christ. The way, in the same way that creations was created through Jesus Christ, the church was created through Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't want to put us hanging. He wanted to be clear. Verse 19, he, Paul then said, for in him, in him, he cannot be more clear than this. All fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And it is for that reason, it is for that reason that verse 20, verse 19 is foundational. All fullness of God was made to dwell in him. That's why he is able to do verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We see this in all of scripture. John said, the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he said, and the, and the word became flesh. In Romans chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, we, we are told that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he proved himself to be Lord. So yes, Jesus was as human as any of us. Although during that... I wonder if Jesus also shouted that way in the synagogue when he was young. Although because of the prevailing philosophy at the time, which is Gnosticism, the people at the time are having a hard time to understand how can a God become man. So they resisted the idea that Jesus was fully man. John, in 1 John 1 to 3, 1 John chapter 1 to 1 to 3, said, no, he cannot be, it cannot be that he was not fully human because look at what John used. He said, we heard him. We touched him. We saw him. Jesus is, John said, it cannot be three years. I saw him eating, and after he eats, he goes to the CR. He's fully human. Right? He was. So it was John's way of telling us, it was John's way of telling us that there was no way for Jesus not to be fully human. He was touched. He was seen, he were heard, the way we touch, heard, and seen any other human being. 
Yes, he was. However, however, the Bible is also clear that Jesus was unique in that. As human as he was. He was more human than we are. We are not as human as we can be. Because when God created the human being, there was no sin. There was the man that God designed. Right now, we are less because sin is already in us. But Jesus was assumed, was that human, he was fully God. And again, Paul declared in verses 15 to 20, he could not be clear, could that be more clear with that? That Jesus is unique because he is fully God and fully human. The person of Christ is foundational to the work of Christ. It is foundational. We will not talk about the work of Christ unless we first settle down that this is who Christ is. Fully God, fully human, cannot be separated and yet distinct. Stephen Wellum, listen to what he said. He said, John, he's talking about John, the writer of the book of John, along with the entirety of Scripture, teaches the exclusivity, unique identity of Christ, and this unique identity of Christ, he said, which is precisely the ground for solus Christus. That's precisely the ground. Have you ever tried talking to somebody or parang, parang someone is talking like parang ang yabang? And then have you ever have, have you ever said to someone, sino ka ba? Have you ever said that? Who are you? Who are you to say that way? Who are you to act that way? When we do that one, we're saying, we are practically saying that According to your person, you are entitled to something. Right? If, if your person or status does not guarantee the thing that you are about to do, people questions you, question you. You're not supposed to do that. You can only do that if your person is like this. You can only tell me or rebuke me or maybe tell me how can you do that or how can you be a pastor when you work all, uh, I, I paid your tuition all your life? You can only say that one if you're my dad and you paid indeed for my tuition. Are you getting me? These two connects together. Yesterday, um, we were in the grocery in Malu and we had this thing when we have our grocery to pile it really neatly. And we do not leave any inch of space in that cart. So I did that. And then I was supposed to post it. But anyway, a foreigner told me, and he was laughing. And he said, I have never seen a cart as beautiful as that. And then I, I laughed. And then he said, I have a question. I said, I said, what? He said, do you have an OCD? Do you have an obsessive, compulsive disorder? And then he said, who will arrange your grocery like that? In other words, look at that. If you are that kind of person, you're expected to do something. Are you getting me? 
The person of Christ, he has to be fully God and fully human because he cannot do the work of redemption unless he is fully God and fully human. And we thank God, we thank God that though this is humanly impossible and can blow our mind, because how can you put a lightning inside a battle? You could not even put a lightning in a battle. How can you put a God in a baby, in a tiny baby, if God in His power did it? Did it. And He did it not to showcase because He knew He can do that. He did it because He cannot provide redemption unless Jesus is fully God and fully man. We can stop here and worship God, to be honest. Who the person is determines what he can do. Jesus is fully God and fully man. He alone can save. He alone. This leads us to the second thing about the Lord Jesus Christ and of course the work of Christ. The work of Christ. Now, I already said that Jesus is presented in the scripture as the mediator. If you look at the Old Testament, Read the Old Testament. God always used a mediator. For example, when Israel sinned against God, when they sinned against God, and God wanted to destroy them in the wilderness, Moses acted as a mediator. Didn't he? He acted as a mediator. The priests, when they come to God, they were acting as a mediator. The Prophets, when they spoke the word of God to the people, they were acting as mediator. When the king, when he is ruling for God, he was acting as a mediator. There are three offices in the Old Testament. When we talk about office of mediators, the priest, the prophet, the priest, the prophet, the priest, the king. Now, the Old Testament is saying. Once you see that these three offices collide into one person, he is the mediator. Right? He is the mediator. Now let's see now if we see this in Jesus. If all offices were taken by Jesus to its climax and say, I am not just a prophet, I am the prophet. I am not just a priest, I am the high priest, I am not just a king, I am the king, then we get to understand that he is the mediator. The prophet. God speaks to his people ultimately through the Son. Now, we don't have time. You can read books. Uh, you can get Tom Schreiner's book on Christ alone. And you can get... Um, Pastor Derek Parfan's books, uh, Five Solas. And I'm hoping to sell it in church. Okay? So that we can uh, reinforce our study on the Five Solas. We will be selling it in church. And the good thing about the Five Solas by Derek Par Parfan, it's Tagalog. Okay? It's Taglish. And I re read it beautifully done. Easy, un easy to be understood. Beautifully done. Tagalog. It comes in handy. So we will, we will be selling that in church. But Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, I think, is the clearest text that says Jesus is the prophet. Hebrews 1, verse 1, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, and take note, in these last days here, 
is when Jesus ascended to heaven, the last days has started. So don't be fooled to say the last days will come. But as far as scripture is concerned, when Jesus ascended into heaven, that's the last phase. He has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he also created the world. And listen to the uniqueness. Listen to the uniqueness of how Jesus revealed God like no prophets ever did. Like no prophets ever did. Listen to verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. Now, the prophets in the Old Testament, they will be given God's word and they spoke to the people. That's the work of the prophets. But look at the uniqueness of Jesus. and the, or the prophets in the Old Testament, as they speak God's word to the people, they were revealing who God is. But here, as a prophet, it did not say that Jesus just spoke the word of God, although he did. He did preach in the Sermon on the Mount. He preached on the kingdom of God, and he was revealing God to the people like the word of God in the Old Testament. But very unique, because he himself is the very revelation of God. The word of God was made flesh in 1.14. John then said in verse 18, John 1.18, he said, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. The writer of the book of Hebrews here, he used every word and illustration that he can communicate that Jesus is the very revelation of God. Our writers in the church knew this. The struggle is that you have an idea and you think, how am I going to put this into words? And I'm bad with it. How am I going to put this into words? I just put it down and give it to them because they will, you know, um, <laughs> they will proofread it and, and change it in a way that you understand. But that is the struggle of the writer. You, how to put it into words? The writer of the book of Hebrews is trying to communicate something that he knew this is beyond what I can think. He looked at the sun and he knew exactly he may not be able to see the sun or look at the sun, but he can feel the, the light of the sun. And then he then said there, the only way for you or the only thing that you know about the sun is the light. And so he's saying that Jesus is like the light of the sun. He's the radiance of God's glory. And he did not stop there. He said, he's the exact imprint of his nature. Have you ever tried that one when you, we were young? We have a clay in your hand. And then we love to press that coin into the, into the clay. We press it hard. And we're, when we get that coin, we're so happy that it's really resembling the image, isn't it? We're so happy. And when our friends, you know, when we press it, our friends would do something and it's deformed. We're, we're angry. I did not get it perfectly. We, we love to see that image imprinted there. As far, as far as the writer of Hebrews, he cannot think of anything but this. If he was alive today, if this is the time he would write, he would probably say Jesus is the 3D picture of God. But the only thing, the only, the, the, the only um, technology he has is a coin pressed into the clay. And that's the best that he can use. But he's using the best illustration he can. So that you and I would understand that Jesus is the highest revelation of God. Isn't it clear? 
Christ revealed God like no other. Christ is the prophet. He's not just a prophet. He is the prophet. Secondly, he is the high priest, the high priest, whose sacrifice of himself atoned for our sins. I can just think of this writer in the New Testament, how hard it was to communicate these truths. And the writer of the book of Hebrews, as he struggles, he then finds himself struggling. How am I going to show that Jesus is the, the high priest? You say, he started to let us know that Jesus is the high priest because Jesus is greater than Levi. Because Jesus is greater than Levi because Abraham is greater than Levi because Abraham came from Levi, isn't it? But this Abraham, before the Levitical priesthood, the priest is coming from Levi, before the Levitical priesthood, Abraham offered sacrifice to Melchizedek. And when he offered sacrifice to Melchizedek, it means Melchizedek is higher than Abraham. And then the writer of the book of Hebrews says, Jesus is not from the order of Levi or the Levitical priesthood, nor from Aaron. He was from the order of Melchizedek. And Jesus was a priest like no other because, again, a priest would sacrifice for himself and for the people. But Jesus only sacrificed for the people, not for himself, because he did not sin. And the craziest thing there is that the one who sacrificed is also the sacrifice. That's why when Jesus was able to sacrifice, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, it's done. It's done. You don't need animals. You don't need the temple. You don't need anything at all. Because the sacrifice offered by the high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, that sacrifice has paid all our sins. And through Jesus Christ, we can come boldly into the throne of grace. Jesus is a priest like no other. He is the priest. Next, Jesus is king or the king. Paul told us again, Jesus, that Jesus is the course. Sorry. Source and creator of all things, even the church. In Colossians 1.18, last part, we are then told that in everything, he might be preeminent. He might be above all. It's a language of kingship. And he might be above all. His authority is beyond any of us. He will be the perfect man. Think about it. Creation, although it is under God, it would have been under man. Right? The perfect man. Remember God said, rule the whole creation. Rule the whole creation. And so Jesus is now the perfect Adam who can rule everything. And of course, he is God himself as well who would rule all creation. Now, Jesus, or yes, Jesus came from David, but he was certainly David's king. 
He was the one whom David referred in Psalm 110 verse 1. When David said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus himself claimed that one. In Matthew chapter 20, 21 to 45, when he had this conversation with the Pharisees, he said, who do you think is greater, David or David's Lord? And then he said, the right way to interpret Psalm 110 is that David is talking to his Lord about his Lord. And that Lord is me. That I am greater than, I'm greater than David. And so Paul clearly said, therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Matthew, when he started his, his book, notice he have three generations of 14. That is the genealogy of Jesus, three generations of 14. 14 because in Hebrew numbering, the name David is total to 14. And three generations, because Matthew started his book saying, Jesus is king, king, king. He is the king of David. So Jesus is the prophet. Jesus is the priest. Jesus is the king. He is the mediator. Look at, not three, but just two, but look at this text in Psalm 110. Let me just simply read it and quickly read it. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your name enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, your authority, rule in the midst of your enemies. So it's like the Father saying to the Son, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in your holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth, will be yours. So far, this talking about the king who is coming. But the twist is in verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That the king is also a priest. And we understand that he is also a prophet. Praise be to God. That he made sure, he made sure that we will not miss it. We will not doubt for when he intertwined, when he puts all three offices together and presented Jesus as the fulfillment of three offices, we are sure beyond the shadow of the doubt that Jesus is the mediator. Worship the prophet. Be united with the priest. Bow down to the king. For you have no other mediator to the holy God but Jesus. We're back to our main message today. Christ, salvation is in Christ alone. Because the Trinitarian plan of redemption is centered on Christ. Whose work and work alone made redemption. Whose person and work alone made redemption possible. His person and work is of absolute necessity 
just for information, the heretical view on the necessity of Christ's sacrifice. One said, they call it optionalism, which means God is able to forgive apart from any specific Savior. So there are heretics who said, it's not just Jesus. In whatever way that God wants to save, He can save. If you say that one, you'll be considered heretic. The second is fatalism. A fatalism is the belief, it argues that God is not the standard. That the reason why Jesus has to come is because God is trying to meet a standard outside of himself. That's also heretical. But Orthodox Christianity has two stands. One, hypothetical necessity. When we say hypothetical necessity, is, uh, this view argues that Christ is necessary because, in, because God, in fact, decreed that salvation will come through Christ as the most fitting means to choose his ends. But this necessity is hypothetical because God could have chosen some other way of salvation. What, what they're saying is that it is necessary because God chose that way. But God could have chosen other way. But here's, I believe, together with John Murray and the rest of the reformers, consequent absolute necessity. And here's what Tom Schreiner said about this. Simply put, the view of consequent absolute necessity, necessary po yun, hindi pwedeng hindi gawin ni Cristo, claims that while God was not obliged to redeem sinners, let's be clear with that, God is not obliged to redeem us. Once He did decide to redeem us, nung nag-decide si God from eternity past to redeem us, there is no possible world in which that redemption could be accomplished apart from the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of God. Because it is only through the sacrifice of Jesus that the holiness, the justice, the righteousness, the grace, the mercy of God, everything about God was um, upheld in the person and work of Christ. It's not like, what we're saying, it's not like a man who is a deceased and can be treated in so many ways. So think about a man who was a deceased. And there's only one way, there's only one particular procedure that that man should go through if he is to be healed. That is absolute necessity. In other words, if God is to redeem, it cannot be in any other way but Christ. So looking at that, we ought to be grateful. Again, because while Christ had to die, had to die, if we, if we are to be saved, if we are to be saved, he was not obliged to do it, nor God was obliged to do it. God gave Christ out of his sovereign choice. It was out of his own sovereign choice to show grace and mercy. Christ laid his life out of his sovereign choice. There could be nothing more humbling for a man who fully understood how, how imperfect he is. For a man who is growing in the faith. And as he grew in the faith, instead of 
realizing that I am becoming more sinless, he began to understand the problem of his own heart and he only grew deeper in his understanding of his total depravity and he grew in his understanding that I do not deserve even a single drop of grace and yet God gave not a drop of grace, he gave an ocean of grace out of his own choice, out of his own character so that you and I can be saved. There is nothing, there is no reason greater than that if we are to worship God and honor God. So Christ, it's, it's Christ alone. Now let me close this with two implications, which are the implications of the reformers at that time. There are two things they put emphasis. If salvation is in Christ alone, they said, it should be a faithful preaching of the word. It should be done through the faithful preaching of the word. They have a deep understanding. They have a deep, I think it was Luther, I, don't, I forgot, or it was Calvin. He said, um, I would rather have the word of God preached today. Because even if Jesus will come into the room today, you will not know him. He said, that is how necessary is the preaching of God's word. Now I'm saying not that Jesus will come with all his glory, but in the same way that he's humble and everything, you might not also recognize him. But he's talking about the necessity of the preaching of God's word. That's why in Colossians, we were in Colossians at the end of it, when Paul realized that the redemption is complete in Christ, he said, the only thing I can do is to proclaim him. It's the preaching. Secondly, it's the participation of the sacraments. The reformers are saying, if the church is to remain in the teaching in Christ alone, they have to consistently participate in the sacraments. Because these sacraments, baptism and communion, reminds us of the sufficiency of what Christ has done. Baptism itself, we know our union with Christ. Our union with Christ tells us that Christ got everything we had and we get everything Christ has. And communion, we know that it also talks about what Jesus did. And I want to say something here um, in preparation to our communion later on. That communion during the early church was central. Let's not do communion like a communion Sunday pa lang ngayon, first Sunday, ang tagal matapos nito. Tintay ng alas dose. The early church was looking forward to the communion. Now, we don't believe the transubstantiation, which is the Catholic, which says that the bread and the wine turns into the real flesh and blood. We don't believe in that. We also don't believe with Luther. Luther said, well, it does not really turn into flesh and blood, but the bodily presence of Christ is above, underside. That's the only thing he can say. Because he cannot deny still the presence of God. This is what we believe. This is what the Reformation believed. The Jesus, the bodily Jesus, is local. He is in heaven right now. But remember that the deity of Christ is not conformed to that body. 
or else we already we only have a bilateral. And the other and the other uh, person of the Trinity is in heaven. No, Jesus, as far as his deity or pagiging Dios niya, he is still everywhere. So what we believe when we participate of the sub is that the bodily presence is not, but the presence of Jesus, deity, is with us every time we partake of the bread and of the wine. And that's why it's telling us, do not take it lightly. Because as far as the palpable presence of God, if you may, the early church believed that they best experience it when they do communion. Something that is our privilege. And every time we do communion, we understand that Christ alone is enough for our salvation. So we cannot afford them to swerve from the reformational doctrine of salvation in Christ alone because the Trinitarian plan of redemption is centered on Christ, whose person and work alone made redemption possible. Let's come before God. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for our time of studying your word. And we just give you praise and thanks for Christ who did it all for us. God, we pray that not only that we will be faithful to the doctrine, that we'll be faithful to live it out in our daily lives. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Cruciform Life Church Podcast. Check out more gospel-centered messages at www.cruciformlifechurch.org or subscribe to this podcast at Spotify.